Well, good morning, friends. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we're beginning uh, this month, the month of March, our Mission and Mercy Focus. Uh, every year we take this month and we spend the first two weeks considering our core value of global missions, and then the second uh, two Sundays of March to consider our core value of mercy and justice. Uh, and this is really important for us to do as a church. Uh, it's really important because uh, we need to regularly remember that God is doing a work uh, far greater, far more expansive than just the work he's doing in your own personal life, which is important. And the work that he's doing in your family, which is important. And the work he's doing in this church, which is important. But he's doing a work far beyond us. He's pursuing the least and the last and the lost beyond 37 Jenkins Avenue, beyond 19446 zip code. He is pursuing the least, the last, and the lost uh, to the ends of the earth. And so we focus uh, today and uh, next Sunday on global missions. And so if you are able, at this time, I invite you to stand with me. Uh, standing is an act of worship for the reading and the receiving of God's word. Genesis 3 I'll be reading verses 8 to 10 and then verses 20 to 21. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Then verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. And would you pray with me once more, dear friends? Father, we ask that as your word is opened up, our hearts would be opened up as your spirit is present among us, that he's doing a work far more greater than filling our minds, uh, but that he is speaking into our hearts. We pray, Father, that uh, so much more than just um, intellectual reception is happening, but heart transformation is happening. We pray for far more than uh, mere cognitive beliefs, uh, but for obedient uh, hands to respond to your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, we're starting off our focus on the core value of global missions, uh, not in what you would think is a, is a typical place to go. Uh, we're in Genesis 3, so we're in the beginning, beginning. Now, usually when we talk about missions, uh, we go to the New Testament uh, or we go to some part of the Bible where God's call and his commission for the church to go out is made explicit. But here we're going back to the beginning. Not the beginning of the church, not the beginning of Israel, but the beginning of creation in the Garden of Eden. Now, you may be wondering, uh, what does Genesis 3 have to do with global missions? You know, because after all, uh, at this time in the Garden of Eden, there are only two people, uh, Adam and Eve. And so how could there be missions? There's not another nation for anybody to go to. There aren't other people groups to reach. In fact, in the Garden of Eden, there's no Bible to translate there's not even a savior to tell others about. So why is Genesis 3 a missions text? Well, it really boils down to two things. The first is this. Uh, without the events of Genesis 3, missions would never have to exist. Simple as that. 
if Adam and Eve obeyed God and did everything that he told them to do, we would never have to talk about missions. There would never be sin in the world that we needed saving from. And so missions happens as a result of the fact that Genesis 3 happened. So without this chapter, there's no need to bring the good news of Jesus to anyone, anywhere, at any time. But the second reason that we're looking at Genesis 3 is because it actually reveals the first and the greatest missionary in the Bible, not Jim Elliott or Elizabeth Elliott or Amy Carmichael or John Patton. None of these. It reveals God as the first missionary, that his activity in the garden is the first recorded missions work in the Bible. And so these are the two things that we're going to look at this morning. Genesis 3 explaining why we have a need for missions and then showing us the heart of God's uh, missionary pursuit of his people. So uh, let's get started. Let's, let's dive in. And we started today in Genesis 3, 8. Um, so that's the latter half of the chapter. Um, so we've kind of missed the opening story. Now, that may be familiar to many of you. And so let me just uh, briefly go over what we've seen in Genesis 3. God creates Adam and Eve. He places them in the Garden of Eden. Uh, this garden is a luscious garden. It has trees of all kinds, mango trees and apple trees and orange trees, and you could eat of every tree, except God says don't eat of one tree. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? The one tree they're not to eat of. But this serpent, who is Satan, appears, and he tempts the woman, and before you know it, Adam and Eve are eating of this fruit, the one thing that God told them not to do. And this is important because this marks the moment in history from which everything else goes wrong. This is the first domino piece to fall in which everything afterward therefore falls. You know, sometimes you get in an argument uh, with a friend, maybe your spouse, maybe a sibling, um, and, you know, a little while later it's eating you up and so you begin reflecting on it and you're just kind of trying to trace the argument back. How did this start? Where did things go wrong? Where did, where did this start going downhill? What I said was a compliment, but why are we now arguing? And we begin wondering that and we're tracing it back. Well, if you're tracing back all of the problems of human history, where does it all begin? Genesis 3. And that's because what went wrong didn't just affect Adam and Eve. It didn't affect just their immediate family. It affected Adam's posterity. What that means is every single person, not just alive now, but every single person who has lived, every single person who will live, all of Adam's posterity now live under the consequence and the condition of his disobedience. He was a representative. He was a head. And this consequence, this condition we live under now is a fracture in our relationship with God. Every human being is born under this. And that's a problem because we're made to be image bearers. We image God. But because of this fracture, we no longer share fellowship with God. Instead, we abound in fear of God. There's no more fellowship, only fear. It's a sad state of affairs. The one we were made to fellowship with for all eternity is now the one we fear most. and We want nothing to do with them. And so as a result of Genesis 3, every single person in human history has been born under this consequence and this condition. This is important. It doesn't matter where you were born. It doesn't matter when you were born. It doesn't matter who you are or whose you are. It doesn't matter if you're a nobility or if you're a nobody. 
Doesn't matter if you're a rich man born in the Renaissance or if you're an infant born in the Incan Empire, it does not matter. Status, reputation, influence, potential, none of that matters. Every single person since the moment of this day in Genesis 3, every single person is born with a fractured relationship with God. But it's far more than fractured. And here's where we begin to look at our text. Read with me in verse 8 where it says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, here's how we know something is wrong with us spiritually. Uh, when we read a verse like this, we're actually struck by the wrong thing. Because I imagine most of you read this passage, and the thing that we're struck by is how God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, and you're going, wow, that's amazing. I can't imagine what that was like. That's the very problem, the fact that we have to imagine it, we have to wonder about it because we've lost it. This was once a daily reality, which shows that something's spiritually wrong because the real shocking thing is actually the second half of the verse. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Why were Adam and Eve hiding from the one they were made to fellowship with? Why were they ducking God? Why were they ghosting God? Now think about it like this. Remember the days when uh, you had to go into work? Days of a bygone era. Back then when you had to go into work and you were gone eight, nine hours of the day, uh, when you returned home, some of you have had this uh, experience. Who was there to always greet you, to, to cheer you up despite the long and hard day you had? You know it wasn't your teenage child. <laughs> you know it wasn't your loving spouse. It was the most faithful and grateful member of your household, your dog. Now, we have quite a few dog owners in this church, and you know how the dog would run, your dog will run up to the door to greet you, to welcome you home. I mean, if it could, it would take the briefcase out of your hand, and begin to massage your feet. I mean, this is the power, this is why dog is man's best friend. As soon as you pulled in, not just in the driveway, into the neighborhood, your dog's ear, ears perked up. And when you began to take out your keys to jingle to unlock the door, your dog was salivating, getting excited, ready to kiss you and love you and be with you and greet you. Now, here's the thing. If you know the joy of a dog meeting you at the door, it also means you know the suspicion of silence when they don't. When you come home and there's not a peep, nothing to be heard or seen, and your dog is hiding. Now, well, for, for what reason does your dog hide? Because they did something they knew they weren't supposed to do. They ate something they weren't supposed to eat. They made a mess out of something that you hid away. Maybe they left you a nice big surprise for you to clean up right there on the floor. Dogs hide when they feel shame. That makes the experience of Genesis 3 so relatable, doesn't it? Now, here's the thing. As sinful creatures, you and I were amazed at verse 8 when God is walking in the cool of the day in the garden. But actually, for a sinless creation, that's not that extraordinary at all. For a sinless creation, God walking with his people is one of the most ordinary daily realities. And so it speaks volumes that after Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit, they hide. Because their disobedience opens up a wave of guilt and shame that begins to flood and fill their hearts. They don't want anything to do with God. They don't want him to find them in that way. I mean, here's what they got to realize. Like dogs hiding in their shame is not human-like. Humans hiding in their shame is animal-like. 
Because as humans, we were made to be before God, exposed, open, and in his presence. But now we cower. All of us cower in sin and in shame. So Adam says in verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Fear and shame is what they feel. Hiding is what they do. And this behavior of our first parents, Adam and Eve, it becomes a generational curse so that every human being is born under the same condition and the same consequences. We have learned to hide like our first parents. Born in Adam's sin, humanity now mimics. We imitate our first parents and we do everything to escape the presence of God. But here is the predicament. Here's the problem with that. How can you hide from a God who knows all and sees all? How do you hide from the presence of a God who is present everywhere? You know, Psalm 139 verse 8 says, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. There is nowhere God is not. Like ignorant children playing hide-and-go-seek. You know, kids, they have imagination, and sometimes they'll play hide-and-go-seek, and I'm like, you're in an open field. Where are you going to hide? And yet we laugh it off. It's cute to see kids hiding behind things that barely cover them. My friend once posted, I think I shared this, a video of their child. I think she was like three years old running around trying to hide. And when she couldn't find a place, she went to the corner, turned around and closed her eyes. And her logic was, if mom can't see me, then, or if I can't see mom, then mom can't see me. You see, that's what humanity is doing. Humanity is in a wide open field. God is the seeker. We have nowhere to hide. So what do we do? We close our eyes and we try to deny him. In fact, we deny, oh, we're not even playing hide and go seek. Especially when we hear God counting three, two, one. You see, this hiding that we do, the Bible has a, a, a term for it, an expression for it. In the New Testament, it's called suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Apostle Paul talks about this uh, in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, he's writing to them, and he writes in Romans 1 verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They're denying reality. They're trying to hide from it through denying its existence. And this is the state of all humanity. Every single person born in this world has learned from Adam and Eve. And we hide, we deny, we suppress. In fact, what Adam and Eve started in the garden by hiding from God, that's the most viral and long-lasting trend to have ever taken over the world. And they didn't even need TikTok to make it viral. It's born and bred into our DNA, into our nature. Everybody in every generation of every tongue of every nation tries to hide from God by suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. We deny him altogether or we worship other gods in his place. But simply denying it won't change or delay the condition that they're in. Now, some of you may have this experience. My, my parents, uh, immigrant parents, they owned a store in Baltimore City. And so every morning, you know, 7 a.m., 7 a.m., they're out of the house, 7 p.m., they came. There was no opportunity for me to be sick because they needed to go to work. No one could stay home and watch me. And so I remember as a little kid, sometimes waking up, my nose was running, I have a headache, and I'll say to mom, mom, I feel really sick, I have symptoms. And she would always tell me, no, Andrew, it's okay, you're not getting sick. If you don't think about it, it'll go away. 
let me tell you, it never, it never worked, not once. Because denial is not a cure. Denial actually makes problems worse because it doesn't delay anything. If, if anything, it actually only shortens the time that you can actually do something. Okay, now what is missions? Missions is taking God's saving good news of Jesus Christ to the world. And why is that good news? Well, it's good news because if the problem of mankind is that we're hiding away in sin and shame, the good news is that God has sent us Jesus Christ to be our new hiding place. You know, what is there, what is the something you can do? The gospel is the something that God has done. But here's the problem. As long as the world is closing their eyes in denial that God exists, then that means they're also blind to receive the salvation God is offering. Missions is ultimately not about bringing bad news to people. It's about bringing good news to people in bad situations. You see, after Adam and Eve hid from God in their sin and shame, we read in verse 9, uh, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? This is so important. When God arrives on the scene, he doesn't arrive with condemnation or accusation. He shows up and he asks a question. But the question is actually an invitation because the question, where are you, is this invitation for Adam and Eve to come out of hiding. To say, it's safe to come out. You know, God doesn't show up and just start screaming at them. What have you done? Are you serious? One tree, not the One tree? He's not like an angry dad who comes home after a long day, sees the garden in a mess, knows that Adam and Eve are hiding, takes off his belt, and is ready to go to town on somebody. That's not who God is. Rather, he shows up, not screaming, not scorning, but seeking and searching. Where are you? Now, the omnipresent God who is everywhere is also the omniscient God who knows everything. So when God asks, where are you? It's not because he's diligently searching. I mean, it's a garden. He sees all, they're two naked people and they're hiding behind a tiny bush. It's not a question of ignorance. It's actually an intention of pursuit. God won't let Adam and Eve hide forever. He won't let them cower in fear forever. He could, he could have seen them hiding and said, okay, well, good luck and left. And there would, they would still be there to this day hiding, but he doesn't. He desires far more than that. Because he actually desires them. They were made to fellowship with God. They've broken that fellowship. God doesn't need it. He's perfect within the triune head. Father, Son, and Spirit. Perfect fellowship. But Adam and Eve, although they've broken it, God desires to restore it, to reconcile them to himself. And this question, this pursuing question, God asks, where are you? That kind of heart, that's the same heart that God has had for humanity ever since. You know, with that one pursuing question, where are you? God is seeking after those to this day, those who are hiding, those who are in sin, those who are in shame, those who are suppressing truth, those who are denying him, those who want nothing to do with him, those who are running away, those who are worshiping other gods in his place. This is the missionary heart of God. To go after those who would sin against him and then hide from him. And instead of calling them out in order to do a bait and switch, call them out and then smack them and judge them, he calls them out and offers them a hiding place. Forgiveness, restoration, reconciliation. Because the problem is they're naked, they're exposed. So what does God do? He not only pursues, 
but then he provides. He provides a covering. We read in verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God sought them out and he brought them out, not to shame them or to blame them, but to dress them, to cover them, to clothe them. You know, the question, where are you, is not condemnation. It's offering. I'm going to clothe you. You see, if this is the condition of every person in the world, then on our own, we can never cover and clothe ourselves. No human-made, sown fig leaves will ever cover you enough, cover your sin enough, cover your shame enough. And so what does God do? He doesn't give you clothing that's a brand name. He gives you clothing that's brand new. What does he do? He offers to you the Son of God, Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the one who can cover our guilt with his righteousness, our shame with his purity, our dishonor with his honor, our darkness with his light, our dirt with his worthiness, our impurity and defilement with his cleanliness. Jesus is the one who makes it safe for you, for those in the world to come out of hiding. And he does this because he not only pursues, but he provides. And in Genesis 3, he provides Adam and Eve garments of skin. But in the gospel, he provides nations with the garments of salvation. We read in Isaiah 61, verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, for my soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness. Dear friends, it's only because God has offered the garment of salvation in Jesus that it's safe for those in hiding to finally come out. And that's the good news that the world needs to hear. The nations need to know God has dealt with their sin and shame in the same way he's dealt with ours. By sending his son into the world to die on a cross, to rise in triumphant, victorious victory, declaring it is safe to come out of hiding. That's what the question, where are you, means. Now, here's the thing. If, if the church begins to understand the missionary heart of God, if we know we've been pursued by God with this kind of grace, then far more than just emotions will fill us, far more than sentiments of gratitude will fill us. Our hearts will begin to change to reflect his. Our priorities will become aligned with his. His desires will become our desires. And we become absolutely convinced that God to this day is still pursuing the lost with the question, where are you? Except now the lost aren't huddled in a garden so God can walk and stroll in the garden asking, where are you? The lost are now hiding, spread across all the corners of the earth, across sea, across valley, across plain. And so how does God now pursue the nations, pursue the lost, and ask the question, where are you? He calls and he commissions the church. He calls and he commissions Christians. He sends you out as ambassadors. God is still asking the question, where are you? He's still pursuing because he has provided. How is he doing that? He's doing that through the church. This is the task of missions. The church going forth, not with bad news of judgment, the judgment that is coming, no, but with the good news that salvation has already come. Dear friends, God's heart is ready to pursue. The question is, are your feet ready to go? Are your hands ready to give? Is your heart ready to pray?
you know, right now, there are um, a little less than 8 billion people in this world. Now, it's virtually impossible to know exactly how many Christians there are, born-again believers who have, you know, confessed and repented. Um, now, there are estimates, of course. And the estimates say there are about 2.5 uh, billion uh, people who practice some form of Christianity. Now, that probably means the number is much less than that. But let's just say, let's just be incredibly uh, charitable for a second. And let's just assume that's right. 2.5 billion people know Christ. Well, that means 5.5 billion people are hiding right now from their maker in their sin and their shame. 5.5 billion people are suppressing truth in unrighteousness. They're closing their eyes. They're sticking uh, their fingers in their ears. And they're refusing to see, acknowledge, trust, believe, obey, and worship the one in whose image they are made. Now, 5.5 billion. Now, I don't know what comes to mind when I say that number. Because it is such an extraordinarily large number. How do you get your head around it? You know, especially because nowadays, like, the, the number billion is used so much. We've lost perspective on it. I don't think you understand how much how, how, how big that number is. Like, like, do you remember a few years ago, Psy came out with the song Gangnam Style and it reached a billion views on YouTube. The first video to reach a billion views and we were all like, oh my gosh, that's, that's incredible. But now there are over 200 videos on YouTube with over a billion views. And so that number just means a lot less. I mean, when I look at the cornerstone of YouTube and see like 32 and then I look at a billion, I'm like, oh, that's, that's a lot. Or, you know, just think of how many billionaires there are. You know, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, and, and now there are so many, we lose count. And so the number seems to mean so little to us. And the problem there is then when we think of 5.5 billion people, it really seems almost like no different to us than like a million. We're just like, oh, it's just a lot of people. But these are people, image bearers, souls. And so you really have to think about it to have, to have the reality impress on your heart. And, and here's one way to think about it. Like a million is a lot. And so how do, you know, a million and a billion, oh, it's just a lot. Well, if you were to count 1 million seconds, you know how long that is? It's 11 days, a little over 11 days. 1 million seconds, 11 days. If you count 1 billion seconds, you know how long that is? 31.5 years. That means 5.5 billion seconds is 173 years and three months. Put in that perspective, can you begin to understand what it means for 5.5 billion people to not know their Lord, God, and maker? 5.5 billion doesn't even count the people in the past. It's just the people present in this hour, hiding, running, trying to clothe themselves with handmade, sewn fig leaves that cover nothing. Now, in that 5.5 billion people, some of, the, some of that number is here in this room. Some of that number is in your family. Some of that number is in your workplaces, your school, your classrooms, your sports teams, your neighborhood. But the far majority of that number is way beyond the zip code, this township, this school district. The far majority of that number is spread out across every corner of the world. And they need to hear God's pursuing question. Where are you? Because God did not stop his pursuit of sinners after Adam and Eve, and he certainly did not stop it after he found us. He continues to seek and search after those, but now he does it through the church. You see, if we've been pursued by God, then we must become this expression of his pursuing question to the nations. 
So let me end with this question. How can you begin to reflect God's heart? It's very simple. One of two things. First, you should begin to pray about going on missions. Every single one of you, without excuse, every single one of you should pray about going on missions. Now, while saying that, I'm not suggesting that we are all called to go, and perhaps we shouldn't all go. If we all go, then there's no more sending church. But here's the thing. If as we all pray that we would go, that then some begin to hear God's call to go. Because I'm not God, but I can guarantee you this. If none of us pray that we would go, then nobody will ever hear the call and go. So Christians should pray that simple prayer, Lord, if you're calling me, send me. Yes, even you grandparents, even you who are retired. Yes, even you with uh, young children, but my kids, God can use them too. Yes, even you youth group students, pray about going. Pray. And here's why this is so important. Not only if all praise, God will call some. If you don't pray, then how are you going to know? But if you pray and God makes it very clear that you're called not to go, then the second thing becomes much easier. If you're convinced God is not calling you to go, then you can know with 100% certainty God is calling you to pray, to partner, and ascend. It's pretty clear. It's as easy as that. If you're not sure that God, if you're sure that God is not calling you to go, and that may be most of you in this room, if you know with conviction, no, stranger, I know God is not calling me to go, then that's so much easier for you because I can guarantee you without being a prophet of God that God is therefore calling you to send, to pray, to partner. And you have permission. You don't even need to pray about that. If you prayed about the first and God has made it clear, you don't need to pray about the second. Because if you're driving down a road and it forks left and right and God is making it clear not to go right, well, dear friends, you don't have to pray about it, but God's calling you to go left. Church, there are two choices for us. We either go or we send and pray. I've said this before, but John Piper says, you know, there are three things. You send, you go, you send, or you disobey. You know, but praise God that he makes it as easy as that. And here we read missionary, uh, uh, Genesis 3, and, and we get this missionary heart of God who's pursued after us. And if his heart, if your heart begins to conform, transform, start to look like his heart, then urgency and zeal and passion and obedience and sacrifice begin to be inbred in you. And then we as a church take it seriously. And we have a call, we have a commission to go out to the nations on behalf of God as his ambassadors with that question, where are you? For God is pursuing you because God has provided the ultimate hiding place in Jesus Christ who will cover you not with garments of skin, but with garments of salvation. Let's pray.